Welcome back to another episode of Authentic Influence. I'm your host, Adam Connor. You know, hopefully you've been listening to my show for a while, and gosh, listening to all those episodes must make you awfully hungry. Today we're going to talk about snacking. First off, if you're new to this show, I hope you stick around, and this community is all about brands who mobilize their masses to become more authentic in their marketing and messaging. And so I talk to brands all around the world about how they do that, and today I'm on with Mondelez International, specifically Bridget Wolf. She's their head of Snack Futures. That's an innovation hub within the organization, which allows for the building out of new brands and focusing specifically on consumer experience. So I was really glad to be able to get knowledge from her about how they spin up new snacks, especially how they do so within a legacy infrastructure. It kind of reminded me of the podcast we recently did with Goldman Sachs and their head of brand over consumer investment and management, Dustin Cohn, because essentially Bridget is able to be building up things from the ground up while having the support structure of a giant within CPG. But there's a lot of things about big food that aren't translating necessarily into these new ventures. And so especially with regard to consumer experience and capturing that, it was great to hear how Bridget is doing things. It was also interesting to learn how they aren't necessarily competing with themselves in terms of space on the shelf, but rather how they are carving out a new road entirely. Regardless, there's plenty to learn here when it comes to building up a new business and how to do that. She shares a lot of perspective around it and especially towards the advice she gives at the end. So I'll back away and let her give you the goods herself. So without further ado, this is from Mondelez and within Snack Futures, Bridget Wolf. All right, everybody, I'm on with Bridget Wolf from Mondelez. Bridget, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. This is great. I can't wait to talk about snacks, but first off, just for people who aren't aware, uh, what the heck is Snack Futures anyway? Yeah. Well, first, let's even back up. What is Mondelez International? Okay. Well, I don't I, even I, know, you know it's funny. Is, I was talking right? to somebody this. I was talking to somebody <laughs> this morning, and I was telling somebody I was doing a bunch of interviews today, and that includes Mondelez International. Uh-huh. They're huge, and, and they were like, "What?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, so um, here, enlighten the people. Yeah, we'll give people because it's some context as to why Snack Futures exists, which hopefully will help you know put light on our story. But um, we're part of Mondelez International, which is actually a twenty-six billion dollar snack company, um, multinational, and we work. Um, our core categories are biscuits, chocolate cookies. You may know the world's famous one called Oreo that you twist, lick, and dunk. Uh, there's chocolate of Cadbury. We have confectionery, gums, and the likes of Trident. So it's a a multifaceted company, um, but it's a lot of the household names that people would know. They may just not know the corporate behind it. And then within that, as we were looking about innovation in the world of big food, small food, what's happening with consumers, um, the amount of attention getting drawn to unique needs and pain points that was going out there and the ability to address that in ways that were much faster than big companies could be, which is where the genesis of Snack Futures came in. So how could we set up within this big um, you know, multinational company, a team that has independence, agility, um, the ability to go where consumers are going, behave in ways that often you would see startups behave, as well as venture and partner with the startups, and then we have the benefit of when 
anything's ready to actually get scaled up, we've got the might and power of Mondelez. So it's kind of a fun place to be where you get to really push boundaries and do things differently, um, all in in the service of consumers and what's going on in their snacking needs and their you know diet and lifestyle needs. But then having the ability to tap into all this amazing expertise and scale and um, knowledge of Mondelez. Got it. Okay. So then you are essentially, and so this is essentially a way to build new brands and incubate new brands within within the sort of very large umbrella that is Mondelez, yes? Absolutely. Our mission is to create new brands and businesses that are highly incremental to what we do, as well as invest in um, what we see promising startups that meet our strategic needs too. So it's the innovation side and then the venture side. Got it. So building up businesses, finding the, the right people to do that and, uh, and looking, looking to grow. I want to ask first then about the, the type of people who, who tend to mesh well in that organization because it coming from, I don't know, I mean, I guess coming out of craft Mondelez is still part of that sort of legacy food. Obviously it's like a big, it's a big food really. Um, what are the qualities of people that translate well from like a big food mind to a, I don't want to say small food mind, but just a, a new, like a completely new business. Uh, what translates well from that sort of legacy world and what are things that people have to be learning very quickly in order to survive with brand new things? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's interesting too. When we set our team up, we, we were a group of legacy employees. We did not do new hires and a lot of people said, oh, you didn't bring in new talents. And we had innate talents in the organization right there that was ready just to step across the threshold. It was almost like everyone was at the gate waiting for them to open. Um, and the personalities there were people who were super passionate about making a difference in lives, really curious about learning and exploring new areas, a level of fearlessness to make mistakes and how we when you try in places and iterating. So learning what we talk about is, you know, progress over perfection. So letting go of knowing everything and being comfortable in the world of not knowing, but building a level of intuition was really important. Um, so it was a way of just unleashing a lot of people who have from those legacy, you could argue, a lot of unbelievable um, skills and maturity and business acumen and understanding, but then this also deep passion to drive something new and make a difference with consumers. And if I can extend that to sort of like the the ins and outs of a business, w- in what ways has being a part of Mondelez and building new brands been helpful in order to get them off the ground? And what do you think are some systems that you've had to break in order to start a brand new thing? Yeah, well... We have almost everything that a startup would need sometimes, we can pick up the phone and find that person. So what's really lovely is we sometimes put that true startup hat on and be like, well, who do we need to talk to and who would we need to find out? And so that internal network is super powerful. Then we also have developers and supply chain folks um, who are experts in this field. So things that you know sometimes an entrepreneur doesn't they don't always know all those things, and we have experts surrounding us, which is great. The other piece then is, you know, so as we progress, we can tap into those resources. I would say a couple of things which we've had to break, and we do this even with our partners when we say who we're from, is the mindset that everything is big, everything is perfect, we want, you know, the proposals are huge and the scale and the timelines. We want things done in days and weeks 
like as if anyone was burning our cash and our time. So really pushing people to be decisive, not having levels. And this is where the autonomy of the team has been super powerful and them getting on the ground so that they really know what, what they're fighting for and why they're making the decisions that they are, but then letting them run with that. And someone even said, so what happens when you they pivot or, or we have to change? I was like, we pivot. You don't go to someone? I was like, no, we don't go through the layers. And so because of that, I think you know, some of the organizations sometimes loves all their data. And there's a point where you need to let go of the data and let the stories talk for themselves. We've also had in, as we talk about the brands we've created, we've had to go physically outside of our locations. You know, we actually haven't created cookies and crackers and chocolates. We've created nut and veggie mixes and smoothies and fruit balls. So going completely outside of some of our manufacturing assets and finding those co-man and partners to work with, um, breaking down just what is the simplest path we can get to, to get an answer, to be comfortable, to take the next step has been really important on our journey too, versus everything has to be ticked off. Or sometimes like, what's the minimum? <laughs> you know, food safety never gets compromised, but on everything else, what's the minimum fidelity or quality we need to have to, to get that learning? Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, similar to what you might have in, in an MVP in, in, any, in mm-hmm. any company, you know, what's your minimally viable thing? Absolutely. Um, good to know that you don't compromise on food safety as well. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I would. It's an obvious, I would assume. It made a lot of people nervous and we, we, we promised we would never do that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, then I'll, let's, I want to dive into the specific brand ideas or maybe product ideas briefly because I have to imagine that uh, obviously um, consumer experience is going to be central to building up new things. Um, where do you source that initial buzz i mean how do you know that and i mean i'm sure that you don't know that a, that a particular product is going to fly off the shelf but um what are what are some of the ways in which you capture consumer sentiment even at the outset to determine okay it's going to be in this category and it's this type of thing and here's what we might want to build or here's what we might want to test how do you find that sentiment so we start off with some strategic spaces and that's anything from where what's going on in social listening and trends and, and honestly walking grocery stores or natural food stores, and you just start seeing different things that are popping up and, and vibes. I mean, right, we've got now meat replacements going everywhere, paleo, vegan, plant-based. The buzzwords are always there. So there are certain things that are popping up around. But then when we get deeper, we will test in what I call real-world environments. We kind of get out and we talk to lots of consumers or we'll throw things on Instagram and see what people respond to, and that's a quick way. We bring them in and we co-create. So we have a vegetable plant-based snack that we're creating called Dirt Kitchen. And it was incredible. We had a full bundle of different elements we wanted to put together. And as we were talking to consumers, they're like, how come no one's done it? And it's like, well, because there's different expressions of it. And some of it wasn't always as easy. But we wanted to tap into real vegetables and making them snackably delicious, actually. and in this case, it was listening to them being like, wow, this helps. Or talking to people who um, you know, kind of behave that way, but they're like, well, what's holding you back? And we would learn and then you would see them light up and there's nothing more powerful than watching that. Or we would do, they're not pop-up stores, but we would pop up in stores or in yoga shops or on a consumer's commute route and ask people to either try our product or talk to them about it. And you would see people hand out money 
And you're like, okay, well, if you're literally handing over money, there's something there too, right? So it's it, there's probably nothing more powerful than someone actually behaving that way versus just saying they're interested in it. Oh yeah, of course, vote with your wallet. That that's the most mm-hmm. one of the strongest votes that there is. So once you have an idea like this, and you 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 start to, I guess, build build out the development plans, and um, you, you figure out how to market in building these from the ground up. What are some of the ways in which you plan to invoke the consumer experience all the way through? Like experience those first moments with somebody bringing a new veggie snack home and enjoying it um, or capturing what they say socially. I want to know how that plays into the overall marketing strategy as well. Yeah, well, building the community is really important and understanding people's you know, affinities and where they are and who they're talking to and participate in that conversation is really important. So, you know, we've been mindful as we've set up our websites and our social media and having a conversation with consumers and kind of seeing, you know, what works. And as we, we see, okay, that was something that was a better conversation than something that maybe fell flat. We can amplify that. And that's how we're designing kind of the marketing plans to see where consumers are resonating with some of the messaging um, we're trying to do some experiential stuff as well. We ran um, with some influencers a yoga mindfulness uh, session and really helping to understand the connectivity of the food and well-being and mindset and kind of peace. So trying to have all of the elements of the experience and then obviously the food to be the payoff, but trying to build consumer experiences that are consistent with what the brand's going to stand for is really important. And doing that, let's say, in a small-scale way as possible, for us, it's really about, it's kind of the baby sets of where you're getting traction, like this polls, this is where consumers are interested, um, this is the feedback we've had, so now we have to address, you know, if there's a concern or something else that's going on, or if there's something that's pulling a lot of attention, how do we keep pushing that and, and building and expanding our information on that? Right. Well, with regard to information and, and with being experiential, I would assume that that's a good way to, I mean, learn how you're, learn who your consumers are qualitatively. But I, I am guessing, and feel free to correct me, but I am guessing mm-hmm. that for any food organization, especially within CPG, it is not the easiest to get access to first-party data of your actual consumers. No, is there, it's really hard. Yeah, and so is there a way that experiential or, or something as you know, it's a, it's a brand new business, just like everything else. I mean, is there, are there new thoughts about how to do that within these new snack brands? Yeah, we're trying to experiment to, to your piece. If anyone's setting up a D2C site, you own that data, you get that first party data, right. but there's complications because now you have to build the brand and get your traffic there. Um, I would say trying to have those real conversations, people like getting out in places where we've been sampling and getting that feedback has helped. And then you direct them to where we're showing up in stores or um, online and in social. So I think it's kind of each way of how do you get first points and with all the privacy laws too, you have to be really careful of what information are you gathering on them. So sometimes it's just, can we follow you on Instagram and then you learn by who that person is um, who's followed us that we can then follow them and you see their world and you're like, oh, this is, this is what their interests are. This is how they live their lives. And that's really insightful too, right? It's not always a million data points, but it's really powerful ones who connected with the brand and then we can kind of learn from, from them. Right. It's a, and I've, I've talked with plenty of folks who, who are, to be fair, more in that sort of direct to consumer 
space and they uh, acknowledge the same thing. I mean, it's a slow it's a slow track that snowballs over time. Uh, is that, um, of course, within food, it happens a little bit, but in creating a sort of direct-to-consumer site or platform, is, is that, do you see that to be the way of the future within these sort of innovation hubs of big food, or um, is it still going to be that traditional sort of retail path? I think you're going to need both particularly in startups and what we're learning is you start in a really small geography because that's what you can manage and, and that's how you want to get close and be intimate with your consumers. But at the same time, you want to be out there and talking and then people can't have access to you if they don't live in LA or New York or Chicago, wherever you're, you're starting or Atlanta. So you still want to allow them to participate in the brand. And that's going to be a way of just being more omni-channel. But I will say, particularly in food, right? Taste is everything. And it's hard sometimes to have people try things. And, it, you know, online can be really expensive in starting up with shipping and getting someone to commit to a big trial pack that makes sense when they haven't tasted the food. Especially if you're in areas where we learned, um, like in Dirt Kitchen, where it's vegetables. So it's already polarizing. And now you're asking them to start in a place that might be really big. So we learned to pivot. Like, how do you get a smaller smaller trial pack just to get it out there and get the momentum turning because without sampling, um, it's harder. Now, in cases where we were able to sit on a counter and someone could, you know, display us and sample us in their smoothie bar or juice bar, it was much easier to convert. You talked about pivots a couple of times here, and it's good to know that you can just do it and that you have that flexibility and autonomy, even within the big food umbrella. Um, just to uh, anecdotally, I'm curious as to what some of those big pivots were, um, because, yeah. uh, I, you know, you're building a brand just like everybody else who listens to this show. And, uh, those stories of pivots are often the most interesting. Yeah. One, I'll, I'll start with where we were selling, um, in Dirt Kitchen. It was an interesting thing. We started with a trial pack that was, um, about a $25 price point, some around 24 totally fair for competitive and sizing and for the quantity, but on an unknown product that has already skepticism as the category itself. It was, we were getting wonderful click throughs and we were seeing that even with the third party data of converting, getting people to site, we couldn't get them to buy. So the hypothesis was we have multiple flavors that we haven't put out there. Let's offer those and get a variety pack going. Can we also get a smaller size so that that first purchase they can try and if they want to buy the bigger they can. So quickly adjusting your um, your packaging and your price points and that offering, that portfolio, what we call PPA, is really important. So that was one pivot that we did, and we saw results kind of quadruple. So that was terrific. Um, and other cases where we're learning is even just our packaging design, where we've got beautiful packaging, and everyone loves it. Consumers love it. Everyone raves about it. And then you get some of the sales guys going, yeah, it's not explaining what it does, though. Like, it's beautiful. It's branded. And this is where I think we're learning as marketers to hold it very lightly and say, okay, it's not doing what we need to do at this phase, so let's change the graphics. Even if one day we may want to go back to the original and they were perfect in every sense of the way for branding, but they weren't doing what it needed to do for conversion on shelf. And so you know, learnings like that of just change it and see if it starts to make a difference or we would have two product lines that we thought we could be shelved in different parts of the store. And retailers like, no, you get a great brand blocks together. So as we had hypotheses, how we would be shelved seeing that and then, okay, how do you course correct or say, okay, this, this is how they're behaving. So what do we need to change in our offering or 
for showing up for the next phase. Mm. Okay. So uh, that's an interesting, that's interesting as well. Uh, those, those other players that you have to, that you have to work with in that sort of both end, talk about a direct and with a, with a retail when you are competing, I mean, do you find that you have to compete for space uh, on the shelf with yourself? Does that make sense as a question? I mean, because Monolith is going to have a ton of shelf space, right, around retail everywhere. I mean, what? how do you elbow your way in there as the snack futures to say, hey, you know, we got this thing too, like, let us in? Yeah. One, interestingly, we're not in our aisles. So the flip side is it's, hey, guys, who knows how to sell this in? in the nut aisle or in the organic section or the frozen section. So it's actually, to your question earlier about what are we breaking, it's the traditional pathways that we have a route to markets, we have to build new ones. So because we're not competing with our existing products directly and yet we're competing with, well, that's not the easiest, like the irony is the easiest path, at least of path of resistance, is going where all of our muscle goes. To your point, that means you actually have to fight with elbows of your sisters and brothers. The flip side is if you go where it's wide open, where we don't play, we got to figure out how we play there. And so that's what we're kind of building along the way. So as you uh, find that maybe path of slightly more resistance, and by the way, I think that's a perfectly fine path, probably better in the future. um, What are you most looking forward to for the things that have been spun out of, of the hub I love seeing consumers' reactions where there's just sheer delight of this hasn't been done. So we've got in the U.S. three brands and one in France that we're, we've launched where you you see a pull of a real need that's getting solved. I really look forward to seeing, while big companies can build small brands in a way that's authentic and meets a real human need and it's not just talking to them like alien consumers, or ideally, we'll get to $100 million brands on some of these, and that would be unbelievable to see. But that's our mission. Um, and to get to a bit of a, a flywheel going where we can start rapidly addressing what's going on in the marketplace at a level of scale, but with true heart for consumers. So you know, sometimes some of these smaller brands get stuck, or the idea is great, and then you taste them. And you know, no disrespect, but they're terrible. And the one thing that big companies have mastered from you know, consumer sciences and sensory experts and so many different levels of testing over the years is they've perfected taste. <laughs> like taste is king always. And that is a place where we can then have a bit of the snack futures heart with some of that muscle might of, of getting the quality out there that can really I don't want to say dominate, but can can transform how people view snacking. And in Snack Futures, we have a very strong bent to well-being. So adding a, a different angle of the portfolio as consumer snack, they can do things um, where sometimes they might have been more restrictive or just avoiding, and now they can participate and have more of their needs met through right. snacks. <laughs> yeah, taste is king. You're right. I you know can't tell you how many. I mean, personally. If I'm thinking about, and especially if I'm seeing something online, and you're right, it is harder to do things with food online because you need to have the taste there. Um, little, little, little more will uh, entice me to do something than, than seeing somebody like enjoy that food, that first reaction to it, the eyes lighting up, you know, that that uh, that reaction um, can 
can really change a <laughs> probably a life for a day <laughs> at least or an hour. So um, yeah, and and you see, you know, you ask about marketing, and the truth is, the biggest marketers, the biggest tool we will have are going to be the consumers who champion and talk about and are ambassadors to the brand. Because at the end of the day, that's how you often find out. I mean, yes, we just had the Super Bowl and there were these massive ads going on. But if you look at who we trust and we talk to, you ask people, what do you recommend? Or your kids come home and say, I had this snack at so-and-so's house. I want it. And people are stuck and like, you know, what's the next lunch thing you do? Or what dinner repertoire? And what do you have before your workout or after? We look to each other for advice and for guidance and to have that level of um, validation. So, Yep. Very, very important. Well, let me uh, let me close with this because it, I think that you're in a really awesome position, and I say that because you sounds like have the autonomy and autonomy and the ability to uh, make your own way within this innovation hub to build new brands from the ground up within that legacy structure. We've had a couple of interviews like that on the show recently within other industries. So it's always a unique position to be in. And for folks who listen in, uh, they envy that. <laughs> well, they, and they emulate the people that get there. So I got to ask for advice to close this out. And the advice is uh, this, given what you've learned with the, the Snack Futures experience and how to build these businesses, even if it is within a huge legacy uh, support structure, um, what advice would you give folks who are looking to, to build a, a more maybe emotional or, or, or authentic or a direct brand that, that gets to consumers on an emotional level? Get out. <laughs> Literally get outside of your office and your home and go talk to people and build a level of human empathy is one because all the data in the world, you know, someone had said to me years ago, I'm actually a reformed investment banker, that behind every number is a story. And behind all these data points is a human being that lives a life that has a reason for buying the snack or the cosmetic or whatever it is you're trying to sell and grow. So understand their world. It will also give you a sharper nose or a way to make decisions to say, yeah, they wouldn't want that or this doesn't help them or it's inconsistent with how you just said they might use it. So you get better at decision making. Um, I would also say start small. You know, part of the way that Snack Futures has been successful to date is we try and make small bets and risks. I was saying earlier, what's enough to learn to gain confidence to go to the next step versus chewing it all off at the same time? And so take those steps, each one building on it, keep your momentum, hold things lightly as you develop it because you have to just remember who you're serving and it's the consumer and, and then your business. So figuring out um, not everything always has to stay the same way. And we, we prototype early, we try and get bundles early and we tell our senior management what you're seeing today may be nothing what you see in six months and setting that expectation very clear because sometimes in big organizations we love you know, whatever was promised from day one is exactly what gets delivered. So come hell or high water, the teams deliver that, even though it may not be the right thing. Um, by setting the expectation that things might evolve differently gives you a little bit of breathing room and some degrees of freedom to serve the consumer. Well, it's excellent advice. Just get up and get out of your damn office, people. Look around. <laughs> Find people. Um, I, uh, I This is really interesting. I, I'm, I've, I've been... It's been a pleasure to, to dive into this industry specifically because I uh, haven't talked to too many people in CPG, but specifically with this, like I just think there's so much opportunity in in sort of this new 
new these new ventures and new building products from the ground up within these hundreds of year old organizations. So I'm envious that you have that, uh, that you, that you're in that position. I thank you for, for sharing you know, a half hour of it with me today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. Really grateful for it. Thank you so much to Bridget Wolf from Mondelez for joining the podcast today. It was wonderful hearing about what you're doing within Snack Futures, and I can't wait to see some of those trickle onto the shelves. If you like this show, here's what you should do. LinkedIn, you use it. I know you use it. There's a page there, Authentic Influence Podcast. Follow it. I know you know how to follow things. There we have all of our episodes, all of our clips, and any other related news about the show. And as we move through this year, there might just be a little bit more news about this show, specifically with things we're doing on the road, live series, things like that. I'd appreciate you show your support via a follow there. You can also connect with me personally on LinkedIn, Adam Connor. Let me know what you're feeling. And if you feel so inclined, a public show of support via a rating and review on iTunes or Google or Spotify is also appreciated. Regardless, I'm happy to have you for today, and I hope to have you next time, where in a couple of days, we will be chatting with another fantastic brand about how they're mobilizing their masses to become more authentic. And until then, for Authentic Influence, I've been your host, Adam Connor, and you'll hear from me again next time.